and welcome to another week, another week at uh, CKTZ and our community meeting. I'm just going to pop us all over to our live Zoom meeting. Thank you, Aton, and um, welcome everyone who's listening at Cortez Community Radio 89.5 FM and uh, anyone who's listening online uh, afterwards or live online to the radio. Uh, increasingly, there are people who are listening to us uh, afterwards, thanks to the great coverage of Cortez Currents and, and uh, Tideline and Esther. So I'm Nova Anderson. I'm your elected rep for Cortez Island to the Strathcona Regional District. And we started these series of community, we were calling them public meetings in the face of uh, all the disruption that is happening in our lives due to COVID and so many underlying factors uh, that COVID is a symptom and part of. This meeting series started out as a place for businesses and nonprofits to share updates with the community. And we have delved into a number of different topics over the weeks. And uh, last week, we started a practice of inviting nonprofits who are specifically doing interesting work or proposing interesting work, partly in response to climate change and COVID and the disruption of our times. And I'm delighted to say that we've got Max Tayson with us here, who is the president of the board of the Friends of Cortez Island Society. I've got that right. And just uh -huh. by way of mm. a little bit of context, the the regional district has a grant and aid program and process and every year Cortez has about $25,000 that the regional district board allocates to nonprofits here on the island for community work. And I have historically received applications from the community um, and then taken a recommendation to the board and have had that supported. Last year was a bit of a bumpy year, but ultimately mostly supported. And I've been toying with the notion of community participatory budgeting for some time. And I'm really delighted to say that this year we are giving that a whirl. So what I've done this year is invited uh, any nonprofits like normal to submit grant and aid proposals into, into the pot. And then those proposals we've put online in a, um, in a Google Drive and given all of the nonprofits on the island access to all of those applications and have invited participants from all of the nonprofits on the island to join us in a process of um, reviewing those applications, finding synergies, opportunities for collaboration, efficiencies, how we can leverage those small funds uh, to the very best of our advantage. And then ultimately in a week's time, if the process goes as it is currently laid out, I'll be asking the nonprofits to vote essentially on the recommendation um, for the allocation of funds. And I will have committed to taking that aggregated vote, if you will, um, to the regional district board as a recommendation for funding and trusting that they will support the collective best wisdom of the nonprofits. And this morning, the, the nonprofits gathered for the first time. We had a, a two and a almost half hour phone call where the various applicants presented their, uh, their cases, their pitches, if you will. And then there was some opportunity for questions and clarification. And uh, there will be two more meetings like that this week, and then ultimately a vote in about a week. 
And so the, I've invited organizations to both submit what they would potentially normally do, um, and then also to reach beyond that and put forward proposals that are of a bigger minded gutsy nature. And so we've got a whole gamut. We've got 20 different project proposals that have been submitted by, I think, nine different organizations, if I remember correctly. And some of those are basic core funding, need $2,000 to keep the lights on and the insurance going. Uh, we've got a proposal like that from FOCI and the Women's Center and the Family Support Coordinator with the Health Association. And then we have some organizations that want some funding for projects, ongoing projects, like the museum has submitted an application for the, the Cortez Wild uh, program at Linnea. And uh, there's some other, oh, so Linnea is offering a couple of projects around food security, both a seed bank, as well as a, a bit of a food hub, stocking their kitchen with more equipment there for food processing on the island. And then a couple of organizations have really stretched beyond uh, what they would normally do and put forward pretty gutsy proposals. One is the Cortez Community Economic Development Association. And you've heard a bunch from them on these calls over time, uh, especially from Adam McKenty and to some degree Lonnie Taylor and others. And uh, so they've submitted five or six different project proposals that talk a lot about economic resiliency on the island and we will certainly circle back to some of that and then the other organization that submitted a number of different project proposals for our consideration that may or may not all fall within the actual legal and financial purview of foci but for our collective discussion uh, is indeed the friends of cortez island society and um, so max is with us rex weiler has also just joined us and rex is a, a long time well maybe that's not true he's an affiliate of the Friends of Cortez Island, and I will let him speak to the nature of his work there. Um, and I've invited him to speak a little bit about kind of what's up in our time at, a, at the highest level. What's, what are we noticing globally due to COVID and how is it a reflection of what's happening at a larger global scale? And then how does that land here on Cortez and how can we be responding in a, in a meaningful way? And I understand that FOCI has a project that it's about to launch. Um, I don't actually know the name of it, some kind of reading list for our times uh, project where different articles that people associated with FOCI or, or anybody at all, I imagine, can submit articles that will be then available up for public reading that are really pertinent to these times. And I understand that Rex has either written or read or contributed some of those. So I would like to start. Welcome back, Rex. Uh, you got cut off and re-entered. Um, so we'll start with Rex and then go to Max and then open it up for a, a conversation of those of you who've joined on the Zoom call. I also invite people who are listening on the radio to take note of the Cortez radio phone number, which is 250 9350200 and you're welcome also to call in Aton is there in the control room to take your questions or thoughts or comments and uh, and share them with us in this space so welcome Rex 
you, you're unmuted, so we should be able to hear you. Can you hear us? Oh, it looks like possibly he's still mucking with his computer. So Max, would you then give us a bit of context of this reading list for the time and share with us a little bit about um, Rex's role? He's just made a note, Rex has just typed in, sorry, I have no audio. Just check computer audio, which works. So maybe Aton and um, Rex can take that offline and see if you can work that through. And Max, yeah, so what's this reading list for the time and what's Rex's role with Foci? Yeah, so um, a couple weeks ago now, Sabina Leader Mintz got in touch and was asking, you know, why is Foci not sharing this sort of larger, larger picture vision of, of how COVID fits into all of other environmental issues um, and she sort of saw that as one of our roles and we had to that point been a little bit silent about that um, COVID's been a bit of a roller coaster for all of us um, but certainly those sorts of ideas of understanding that that COVID is really just one of many symptoms of of a general problem that we have with with our relationship on planet Earth. Um, and it was a really great example uh, of one of the ways that I like to think about foci and the Friends of Cortez Allen Society and remind people that it's really kind of an ecosystem of people on Cortez. It's a structure that we can all use to uh, achieve our goals for ecosystems. Um, and Sabina is a really amazing example of that, of somebody who's like, you know, can achieve a lot, and a lot of it gets achieved through foci, and that's really great. Um, so yeah, she came to us with this, with a few articles that she had found that she thought were really important for the Cortez conversation, and wanted them to get broadcast through the foci channels. And so um, she had sent that same invitation out to Rex, and the three of us started a conversation about what sorts of materials might be on that reading list. Uh, she suggested she was talking with uh, Liam about a title of the Journal of the Engaged Citizen. And uh, I did some etymological digging on the word citizen, and it's really to do with um, cities. And so I suggested the Journal of the Engaged Rustic as a, as a slightly more appropriate version for us, perhaps. Okay. Rustic being about country folks. And Great. Uh, so yeah. while Rex continues to uh, join us, he's got technical issues coming on and off. Max, would you just give us, for those who don't know the deep history of foci, I mean, don't go into great detail, but how long has it been around and what its primary mandate and some of the primary projects that it's taken on over the years so that we'll have a better understanding of how, what you're looking at building upon when we come back to the projects that you're submitting? Yeah, for sure. Um, so as an organization, we're over 25 years old, I think getting close to 30. Um, started with, uh, I think one of the first projects was the effort to create uh, Quas Park and protect the island in, in Hague Lake. Um, there used to be annual home shows to support um, people making 
environmentally friendly decisions around their homes and home improvement and home products. Um, and we've always really been about, um, well, here, I'll just read you our charitable purposes. To identify environmentally sensitive areas, particularly on Cortez and neighboring islands, to monitor and protect wildlife and the safeguarding of its natural habitat, to promote the protection of the forests, lakes, streams, and critical watersheds, and the enhancement of fish stocks where appropriate, to promote the study and preservation of the cultural heritage and historical landmarks of the area, to provide educational programs that relate to ecological understanding and appreciation of the environment. Um, and often when I think of FOCI these days, I think of your stewardship programs, your stream stewardship and marine and lake. And can you give us a high level overview of your stewardship work? Yeah, so um, we do the management of a bunch of the parks and trails on Cortez Island on behalf of the Strathcona Regional District. Uh, we have a bunch of community education projects. We have our Love the Lakes Department, which, um, which began a few years ago in response to algae blooms of concern in Hagen Gunflint. And that's a pretty good um, example of some of, the, of our, of our stewardship work where we're, you know, really a hub for, for community concern and connecting that with uh, experts that can help us understand our situation. Um, we're organizing a monitoring effort that's been going on for a bunch of years, getting volunteers out on the lake to gather data so we can better understand our situation, and then also have the charitable status to be able to apply for funding for all of this. Great. Um, yeah, and then um, stream stewardship and marine stewardship. Marine stewardship is, um, you know, eelgrass monitoring and uh, a lot of things that Sabina works on, um, uh, biodiversity survey from around our coast, and some education pieces around how we can be good to the environment. We just started a forage fish survey project recently, looking for little forage fish eggs. Um, and then, yeah, stream stewardship is largely run by Cease and Christine. And, you know, that's um, keeping an eye on salmon stocks, doing some enhancement where appropriate, some habitat enhancement as well, um, connecting that with youth as often as possible. And um, in recent years, we were, um, we managed to team up with the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure to get some culvert upgrades that needed to happen anyways, make sure that they happened in a way that supported uh, salmon as, as well as possible. Um, so yeah, there's a few examples. Okay. So the, the application that you've submitted for the grant and aid is by far the gutsiest, biggest visioned and biggest budgeted of anybody. And you really took my call uh, to heart. And so thank you for that. It's obviously beyond the scope of the grant and aid, uh, which is about 25,000. I think you've applied for 250 or 300,000 for the various programs you're putting forward. Um, and so I'm really keen to see how this collective budgeting process may actually coalesce into a larger vision that nonprofits can get behind on the island 
and leverage some larger funds with it. So what has inspired FOCI to take the leap beyond your sort of regular stewardship programs into such a big jump at this time? And I might actually pause the answer on that if Rex is with us. Rex, I see you again. Can we hear you this time? I don't know. Can you hear me? I can. Congratulations. Thank you for your persistence, sir. Yeah, always a little techie issue. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much. So Max has been giving us a little bit of a, a background history of uh, FOCI, as well as a little bit of context of this reading list for the time that you've been involved with. And so I'm hoping that we can just dive in, you and I, and tell us a little bit about um, what is on this reading list so far, and have you written any of it or read any of it? Uh, put, help us contextualize where we're at planetarily, I mean, a simple question to begin with, uh, in these times, and, and how that connects here. So what, what would you put forward for our collective reading at this time and why? Oh, um, it's like the CBC book, what they call it, Canada Reads. You know, if, if, there's, if there's one most important book that all Canadians should read, which isn't necessarily the best book, but it's the most important one for the time, uh, what's, what's coming across your desk as being the reader and writer that you are? Well, I think there's some classics that we probably should all be aware of. Um, the, um, I don't know if, if anybody hasn't read Silent Spring, that'd be a good start. Um, if, uh, from Rachel Carson, it, Limits to Growth was published, uh, now it's almost uh, 50 years ago, 48 years ago. And that is still a really important uh, piece of work to put in context what's going on today with the virus and everything else. Uh, there's a 30-year update of that Limits to Growth book, which is, is great because it updates it based on uh, what happened between 1972 and uh, 2002. Um, you know, there's other books on my, you know, sort of fundamental ecology reading list. Steady State Economics is one of them, Herman Daly. Um, Vandana Shiva has written a great book called The Violence of the Green Revolution uh, about agriculture and ecology and politics, which pretty much fits right in with what we're doing. I always recommend my favorite ecology book of all time is Mind and Nature uh, by Gregory Bateson. That's really, I mean, Silent Spring was the, was the ecology book that really woke me up to ecology, but Mind and Nature is still my favorite ecology book of all time. Uh, I just finished reading a really interesting book called The Invention of Nature, which by Andrea Wolf, which is the um, story of Alexander von Humboldt, who uh, was um, a biologist and naturalist who toured the world um, in the uh, 19th century and really a lot of his vision of nature as a sort of magical interconnected system um, 
is still kind of the, to me, the ecology message that we need to understand. Another classic book, I don't know, this is going on, isn't it? There's a lot to read. Um, I don't want to overdo it. I'm wondering uh, if, if you might put together a reading list and, you know, Marnie would bring in half a dozen of each of these books and there'd be a little section in Marnie's. I know that she's only open by appointment right now, but, uh, you know, if people wanted to go in and peruse the, the foci reading list for the time. That might well, I'll tell you what, I can make this really easy for everybody. If you Google an ecology reading list and my name, it'll take you to it. I just published it uh, about a month ago. Okay. So this is your list that you already have online. Yeah. And it has Great. all those books that I mentioned. Um, and um, a bunch more. Is there anything that has been written in the last you know, few months in this time of global COVID that has really... Um, well, I've been mostly reading, you know, I've been reading the articles, I've been reading the uh, posts online. I, I, there hasn't really, there, I wouldn't say there's a new book out that really no. captures what's going on, but I've been reading everything that's online. Uh, here's, here's, how, um, here's how I see, you know, where we stand in the, in the issue ecologically. Um, COVID is a symptom. The virus, the pandemic is a symptom. And it's a symptom of humankind has overshot the capacity of the earth. And it's a serious symptom, and it's something we have to take seriously. It's important, um, but it's climate change is also a symptom. It's not necessarily a fundamental issue. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of the larger issue, which is human expansion, human overshoot of Earth's capacity, the biodiversity collapse, toxins in our environment, and so forth. These are all symptoms of overshoot. The book that I was going to recommend just uh, a bit ago was a book called Overshoot, um, which was also kind of a classic. Um, and um, it describes it all very well. It was written by William Catton uh, in the 1980s. And, but it describes exactly what our dilemma is. Um, now, Essentially, I, I think everybody understands what I'm saying, but it doesn't have to be explained. But just briefly, um, the human population and our consumption trends, we all know that the, the wealthy nations and wealthy population consume the most. Uh, and our waste stream just simply is taxing the Earth's capacity to, to replenish what we use. So how that affects us here on Cortez. The solution to all of this, or every, there are lots of solutions, a lot of things that have to happen, but all of the solutions involve localization. Localizing food security, localizing energy as much as we can, localizing health care, localizing every resource that we use as close to home as possible. That, that is uh, fundamental to all of the solutions to our ecological challenges. 
So that's why it, I think it relates to what we're doing here on Cortez Island is that um, we, because we have a rural community where people are already used to living modestly and taking care of themselves as much as possible, planting gardens, growing some of their own food, that we have a little bit of a head start uh, in localizing. And I, I would suggest uh, Cortez Island or any community on earth, that's going to be the trend of the future. I have a very good friend, Jason Bradford in Oregon, who's who wrote a book a few years ago called The Future is Rural. Mm -hmm. Very good book to read. Um, and um, you get by the title, you get where he's going with this, is that... Uh, the, the, the future is going to be communities that can take care of themselves, grow as much as their food and supply their resources as much as possible. What are okay. some of the things that you're seeing happening on Cortez um, over the you know, weeks, months, years that gives you a sense of uh, hope around our own localization efforts? Reminds me of a, one of my favorite lines from Antonio Machado in a poem he wrote something I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase it's written in Spanish but he says um, he says nature all I ask of you is a, a confidence in you and peace he says a, a uh, he says peace a, a little bit of, of a break of a break from fear and hope <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what, I mean, what gives me the most hope is nature itself, honestly. That's what gives me hope. Um, and, you know, my message, you know, my ecological message to people is basically become a student of nature, become an apprentice of nature. We're not, we're not going to engineer ourselves out of this. That, that uh, all the solutions to our overshoot dilemma have to do with us learning the way nature works and, and, and getting in, in touch with how the natural systems work and learning from that. Being a student of nature rather than trying to manage nature or, or anything like that. So, um, if, if COVID is a message from nature, some kind of encoded message from Mother Earth, what's the message? Too many people consuming too much stuff, overcrowding. Um, the the history of pandemics are really it goes back to uh, the one of the earliest pandemics in Athens in 400 BC. Too many people in too small a place, and and these viruses are mutating. Viruses and and uh, bacteria are mu mutating all the time. The, never sleeps uh, and they're always looking for ways to um, exist in, in a species that gives it the opportunity and, and by um, by reducing the habitats uh, by creating monocultures uh, monocultures of humans uh, cities, I mean there are massive cities now, you know, Sao Paulo Tokyo cities of 20, 30 billion, or excuse me, 20 or 30 million people. And so those, those kinds of environments are um, perfect for viruses. Yeah. And 
So we've created the conditions for this. That's what I think the message is. I think the message is um, overconsumption, overpopulation, overshoot of the planet. And if, if humanity doesn't slow down, then there are, you know, everything else we try, if we don't slow down our, um, our growth, our consumption, our population growth, we don't slow those things down, none of the other solutions are going to work. We're not going to save ourselves with windmills and electric cars. Dee Clark, a resident here of Cortez and a, a contributor to Cortez Currents, wrote an excellent article uh, just a few weeks ago about how we're not allowed to be surprised by COVID. We can be horrified and saddened, and, but surprised, no, because as you say, we have literally created the conditions for a pandemic to take over yeah, uh, created yeah. the, the space where humans and animals interface so much uh, as we as we push into the edges places crowded as you say uh, international travel all of these things that literally create a perfect petri dish for the kind of situation that we have um, and i've heard some really sobering uh, reports from people who you know, epidemiologists who predicted exactly this kind of thing. I mean, we didn't know exactly where it would start or exactly how it would spread or exactly what it would look like, but, but very, very similar. So nature itself is where you find your hope. That's where I find my hope. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I looked, I look to nature. I trust nature. I mean, in a sense, I mean, one of the books on my reading list is the Tao Te Ching, um, you know, I'm really a Taoist, uh, yeah. and you know, to me, what I learned from the Taoists is, if you want to know how to live, just watch nature, watch how it does it, and all the lessons you need to learn are there, and I thoroughly believe that. Yeah. Well, thank you for your uh, your lifetime of work, of activism, of authorship, of teaching. I know you've been teaching a lot of young people here on the island over the years and your continued involvement with foci. So I'm gonna turn it back over to Max to tell us a little bit about some of the programs that foci is wanting to lean into and then invite you to, to comment on any of those if you like Rex and then we'll open it up uh, to, to uh, participation. So Max, you still with us? Yeah, I'm still with you. Um, my Zoom program on my computer has frozen, but I'm calling in as well through the landline so I can just do audio at least. All right. Well, that's great. Most people listen on audio. Um, I just see that, uh, oh, where did it go now? That Roy Hales with Cortez Currents and Cortez Radio estimated, he said 61 people listened to the last meeting podcast and that with radio, et cetera, there's probably you know, at least 100, perhaps 200 people who are listening in. So uh, that's great that there's many different modalities to both connect in and, and listen afterwards. Our, our grant and aid nonprofit call this morning went down because TwinCom went down, it seems like most over the island for a while and people dialed back in. So thanks for being resilient here with us, Max. So just uh, pulling up the proposal, the, the really gutsy proposal that you submitted, it has, I believe, five or six different um, different projects, five different projects from decolonization to conservation plans, wild food programs, community stewardship programs, ecological youth education, 
uh, you've got the whole gamut. So before losing us in, in the details there, would you share with us a bit about why, why you think this is a time to take such um, a stretch, such a leap, and, and why FOCI is in a position to be able to meet some of these challenges? Yeah, so um, a lot of the stuff that's in our package uh, is stuff that we've been, we've been dreaming of and thinking about and working on for a long time. Some of it is pulled from the Cortez Climate Action Team, uh, Cortez Carbon Solutions, that uh, you pulled together a while ago to inform gas, back, gas tax spending as it uh, relates to our climate, climate concerns initiatives. Yep. Um, so a bunch of it isn't really new. Um, but right now, it feels like a really good time to take a leap forward because, you know, as Rex was saying, COVID is a symptom of, of a deeper issue and all the other symptoms are also getting to a point now where they can no longer be ignored. People are beginning to really die in a big way, in a way that we haven't really seen, um, certainly in the Western world. Um, and of course, the impacts of climate change are are already well underway around the world. Not so much here, but but certainly here too, in North America. But so the fact that the symptoms are really hitting home feels like a good moment to to reflect on on where we're at and where we need to go. Um, we also have a slowdown culturally and economically that creates space in people's lives. Um, some of the stories that we've been living by for a long time are starting to seem a little bit hollow and um, not reliable, and people are looking for some more solid ground to stand on. Um, so we're seeing that with, with um, a huge community response in food security. Um, people are, are really keen to look after their own food needs. and. And I would say that probably most of the people who are responding that way, um, it's not that they didn't think that that was important before, and probably to, to varying degrees they were already growing food, but now it's serious. Now, now we know that, that the time for messing around is kind of behind us, and we have to take ourselves in every way up to the next level. And um, it took us a couple of months, but FOCI is now also ready to take things to the, to the next level. And um, the other part of your question about what makes us well-suited to deliver this programming, um, FOCI is not really uh, an institution. Is, it can be easy to think of it as like a, like a, like a thing, its own thing. We're programmed to, to treat corporations as their own thing, but they're, they're just groups of humans doing things, and that's all FOCI has ever been. And and to a large extent, FOCI is is the sum total of its board and um, some project managers, and I can see it being a lot more than that. But so, as as a model, as a if we can think of it as like an ecosystem, and and so we're inviting um, resources and the people who 
who want to deliver programming into that ecosystem. And so it's not so much that foci can deliver these projects, but it's like, can this community deliver these projects? And is foci the institution that can be sort of the vehicle or the vessel or the, the funding conduit and, and the anchor to a lot of them? Um, I think that we are well suited um, for a lot of them, but some of them might be better suited to other organizations or institutions, and, and that would be fine too. I'm really sure. interested in this. Yeah, we, we got into a little bit of that even on our phone call this morning with the nonprofits mm -hmm. of, you know, realizing, as you say, that so much of the threads of what you've got um, here have historical roots with other initiatives and other times and other organizations and other people. And, and there may well be pieces of this that are much better suited to partnership that maybe other organizations would, would be the lead on or what have you. Um, I know in speaking with you one-on-one -on -one that the, the first project that you're titling Decolonization and Reconciliation Initiative was kind of the scariest one to launch. So how about we just get that, uh, dive straight into the scariest. Tell us a little bit about this Decolonization and Reconciliation Initiative as, as it's being put forward. Uh, the the one-liner summary you've noted in your application is to decolonize settlers support the indigenous cultural resurgence and connect with nature to feed and shelter us today sustainably. So why is connect, connecting with, I mean, I, I completely concur that decolonization and reconciliation is just simply the work of our time. Um, but how does this relate to sustainability and uh, self-sufficiency and localization as Rex was saying? Yeah, so, I mean, it jumped to my mind as I was, as I was pondering the other aspects of our proposal, especially wild food, that, that increasing the depth of our relationship with the land and the ecosystems, the places that we live and the other creatures that live here, it feels really uh, inappropriate to do that in a, in a much more intentional intense way without engaging with the fact that we have kind of neglected responsibilities and relationships with our history. So that's kind of how it started for me, but, but it's also recognizing that colonization is also a symptom of, of our limits to growth. And, and so our process of, of unearthing the, um, the parts of our culture that are still colonizing today uh, will help us to unlearn those aspects of our culture. Um, and so we can think of colonization as, as one response to, to limitations. So for, for European settlers, there was a lot of um, population and economic and food scarcity pressure that drove expansion into other parts of the world. And um, it was partly that pressure and that uh, inability to accept the limits of growth that allowed us to tell all kinds of horrible stories about, about who, is, who, who qualifies and who does not qualify as, as a human being worthy of, of rights and respect. Um, and I would say, I would suggest that, that we're doing that today still um, to, 
to indigenous people everywhere in North America, but maybe more strikingly um, to the people who are uh, even more dramatically on the front lines of climate change. Like those people are not factoring into um, to our to our evaluation of our impacts so much, and that's partly, I think, the same kind of colonization culture that we have. Well, I certainly so know in reading through your proposals that, that there's that thread weaves throughout all of the work that you're proposing to do. Um, so perhaps we'll take that as a thread rather than a deep dive into that one to the beginning. So you mentioned the wild food program. Um, tell us what you have in mind about wild food and medicine. Yeah, so uh, recognizing that um, ecosystems in the natural world are extremely resilient, complex, diverse entities, and because of those features, you know, they're, they're, they can really um, get through a lot of hard times, um, as opposed to human systems that are simplified. We can think of monocultures in the extreme form um, as something that, that can be susceptible to just a single pest, can come and wipe out a crop or even a whole garden. Um, and so relying on nature for a bunch of our food, I think, is a lot more reliable in a lot of ways, um, comes with a lot of its own concerns. Um, it also addresses some of the missing pieces, and I think a lot of our food systems on Cortez that are sort of in their in their in their um, embryonic state. So, so a lot of people have familiarity with growing vegetables, but growing vegetables don't amount to a whole lot of calories or fat, uh, protein, which is which are some pretty important food groups. And to go from the gardens that we all know and love in our backyards to a totally self-reliant island, I think, um, requires the relying on, on quite a bit of wild food for fat and protein. And, so and it's so abundant you, and efficient in human time and energy as well. Well, certainly the, the whole history of people in this place before the last hundred years or so has not been around agriculture. Um, mm -hmm. well, what would this program uh, you've got a, a requested amount of $50,000 to deliver this program. What would this program um, do? What would FOCI or FOCI along with your partners uh, want to actually do to educate and support people to both harvest wild food and medicine, but um, also do that in a, in a mindful and, and sustainable way? What, what would you do with 50 grand if you had it? This yeah, so 50 grand is um, for two years of um, basic, mostly coordination time to gather resources, produce resources that are educational, but also connect people to each other um, through the process, uh, which I think is kind of kind of a, a key thread throughout a lot of our proposal. Is that you know yes, we could we could have information. Additionally, that is more locally relevant and packaged in a way that is also locally relevant and um, timely. But, but most importantly, I think, is, is creating a culture. So we don't, or we haven't so far, been responding in a huge way to information available. But what does drive 
our our decisions and our habits is our culture and our culture is made up of of us and, and what we do together and how we see each other and so the wild food harvesting program is multimedia education and experiential learning and connecting those learners together with each other uh, so that it becomes a bit of a self-reinforcing feedback loop that that actually becomes a set of habits and life ways that are are different from how we've been living. Mm -hmm. I have long said that if there was funding to fund, you know, half a dozen or a dozen part-time coordinators on this island, that we could move mountains, especially if, if those people really worked in teams. There's, I mean, there's so many volunteers who do such great work, uh, but to really have the focused, dedicated time to get so many of these initiatives that we've long dreamed of up and off the ground, you just, you, shy of somebody who's retired who dedicates their life to something, you really need some paid resources. So I'm hearing largely that the food program is that. The, the, the conservation plan, which you've also outlined here, is a, a more modest budget of uh, 20, just over $20,000 and has also half of that into, into personnel time, if you will, or, or most of it actually between uh, staff and consultants. Tell us a little bit about the, the conservation plan you have in mind, uh, sensitive ecosystem work. Yeah, so a lot of the pieces um, have already been put together. It's a bit of a consolidation of, of a lot of information that we already have, um, some ground truthing, so going out and verifying um, some aerial surveys that have been done, but then also just, just having a really good think about what's already protected and what sorts of ecosystems might be rare and special and would benefit from some interconnectivity. And then, yeah, we do have a chunk of, of that funding request that is for some uh, paid expert uh, input into a conservation plan. Mm -hmm. And certainly, as you say, a bunch of this work has been done partly through the, the work that uh, the community forest did and its predecessor, the Ecoforestry Society and CLAHOOS with the ecosystem-based mapping work. Uh, all right, so then how does that connect into the other program that you have outlined that's, that's relatively similar that you're calling the Community Stewards Program? Right, so, and just before I move on, uh, the, the conservation plan would also really help us to know, take a bit, bit better stock of some of those uh, food resources that we have uh -huh. on our island and uh, can help us make sure that, that the conservation part of that food harvesting is really important. And that food harvesting um, community effort also feeds into our conversation, co conservation plan uh, because getting people out on the land and paying attention to where they are and, and what's around them and, and having some, a little bit of education around data collection and input, um, those two things can really feed off each other quite strongly. And, and so then that, as, go ahead. That, that program, I gather, would be largely delivered on 
uh, the crown land that is held by the, the community forest, which is just under half of the land base of the island. There's also then Island Timberlands private forest land holdings. You'd certainly need permission to be doing this work there. Um, but we do have large tracts of wild lands and I'm, I'm gathering that this is largely focused at those lands, whereas the community stewardship program is more directed towards working with uh, pr private landowners around um, covenanting and protecting lands that, that they have, knowing that both the, the crown and the forest lands and private lands all are within an interconnected web. Um, so I, I know I noticed that the community stewardship program uh, is building on a lot of work that's been done over the years, especially by what was previously the, the Cortezon Conservancy and, and Sabina's ongoing work to work with uh, key landowners of large and relatively undisturbed tracts of land. So how do you imagine this program taking uh, that historical work to the next level with your um, proposed budget of 150 grand? Can you repeat the question? It's for sure. Something so popped of, up on my screen. No, for sure. So a lot of really good work that's that's happened historically with the the conservation the the Cortez. Well, I don't know what they were called, Cortez Conservation Organization, and then Sabina since who has been working with landowners specifically of of large tracts of relatively un. Um, broken pieces of land. So just a, I'm acknowledging that a lot of that really good work has happened over the past. And you're now proposing a $150,000 project to take that work to the next level. So, I mean, multiple pages in this particular project, but what's the essence of what you want to be delivering? Right. With the community stewards program. So the essence is what are the ways in which we're living now that are outside of the food realm, basically, that we can do in such a way that, that, that it takes into consideration the needs of our ecosystem? Um, so if the, maybe some examples would help to draw it out. So we have, well, we have a lake that is that is suffering from some algae blooms. And those are in part probably caused by nutrients and from in part human and animals. And so the ways that we, we deal with the ecosystem within the private, private land setting uh, really has a huge impact on how those nutri nutrients flow through the land. Um, and so just bringing some awareness to the needs of ecosystems and our, our great variety of options for how we can make wise ecological decisions on the land that we steward, um, as well as connecting people with resources to help them make wise decisions um, or even financial support to make uh, healthy ecological decisions, um, then we can support increased conservation and flourishing nature. So I see this program has f five, I think, um, sort of subcategories that range from education and outreach to landowners around best practices and covenant options, 
uh, engagement, stewardship, education, which is some of the things you've already been doing in a, as an organization, community watershed enhancement. I know that there's been some work done specifically around the lakes and identifying the watersheds and awareness around those watersheds. But something that was new to me was your notion of a native plant nursery. Can you uh, share why you think that is a relevant thing to do? Yeah, for sure. So um, a lot of our work in stream stewardship and in this proposal, um, working with landowners to reestablish foreshore plantings where maybe um, native plants were cleared right up to uh, a marine or, or lake foreshore. Um, some, some folks might decide that those want to be rehabilitated into a native setting uh, to support habitat and, and nutrient uptake. Um, so the, the, culvert, the culvert upgrades that were done by highways, I know that there were some kids who went and planted native plants that, that really exactly. visible to the public as they drive over them. Is that, that's yeah, the note? Exactly. There's, there's so many settings where we need, we need a, a stockpile of plant material and, and thriving plants to, to put them into some of our projects. And so that piece is kind of, it's not huge, but it just saves us from having to import things from off island, which has risk of bringing soil pests or invasive species over. Um, it costs money that we don't really need to spend because we can do that ourselves here. It's just have, have an inventory of native plants that somebody looks after. And why not just go and dig them up from somewhere they're happily growing and transplant them? Why, why cultivate them? Um, I think that uh, probably timing and ease would be one of the answers and also giving plants uh, an opportunity to maybe recover from that trauma. Um, sure. Maybe not, maybe we wouldn't be so much taking away from one little micro ecosystem in order to benefit from another, although that would be fine too. It's not a bad idea. We could, we could probably look into that if we wanted sure. to save that chunk. Okay, and the, the final, and, and I'll, after this one, I'll let you have a breath. You've uh, been sharing a lot with us. Thank you, Max. But your final of the five programs that you've outlined for us is an ecological youth program, um, applying for just a set, over 70,000 to do that. And I think most of these programs, the, the budget you're proposing is for a two-year time span, if, if I read correctly. Um, so, and, and I know that FOCA has done a lot of work with youth in the schools around gardening and um, the Children's Forest Trust has done a bunch of youth education work and um, homeschooler groups and uh, various formal and informal schools. So what's the niche that FOCA is hoping to fill that isn't already uh, well served by ecological youth programming? Or is it really more a coordination amongst the various efforts that are already afoot? What's, why this program at this time? Yeah, for sure. Uh, really good question. Um, it, feel, it felt a little bit strange to be putting this proposal together in such a silo when there are so many organizations already doing critical work with youth. Um, and we did try to, to acknowledge all the opportunities for partnership throughout the proposal. And we really look forward to it shifting a little bit as we have more time to explore things with, with so many of our partners in the community and the human beings. So it was just kind of a way of, of making sure that 
this vision that we're putting together includes includes youth as a really strong element. Um, youth being, you know, every generation being an opportunity for a culture to reinvent itself to some extent. And that sort of being part of the goal, it really would benefit from youth involvement uh, in every in every way. Sorry, Max, I fully suspect that a number of these programs that you put forward, um, if and when they get launched, will look a little bit differently than you envision them as an as an individual organization because of the collaborations that can come forward. I want to read the concluding paragraph in, in this particular proposal. It says the program centers around nature connection, self-reliance and ecological community service. We will employ an ecological youth engagement coordinator. So again, you know, a person power to, to deliver this work, to develop this program in consultation with parents, youth, elders, educators, mentors, and in partnership with other organizations, including the Forest Trust for the Children, Cortez Literacy Now, Folk You, the Museum, the Health Association. So you really acknowledge that there's a lot of other organizations doing great work in the youth field. And I, I see this as one of the places uh, that, especially recently in these times of acute disruption, has been underlined by a number of organizations as a place that needs our particular focus. And so what I am sort of imagining here is a little bit of a a coordinated hub effort between so many of these programs that that really support youth-based connection with nature. Yeah, and if I could just add one thing to that, we really need our youth right now. Um, we're in a complete state of emergency, and we need all hands on deck. And youth are creative and energetic, and uh, can be a valuable asset to a community. Well, in, indeed, our future, and that becomes more and more clear the older I get. And as I watched, you know, a generation younger than me become adults, it's been really remarkable to realize that the, the future isn't some long, distant, theoretical reality. Well, thank you, Max. Um, Rex, did you want to come back in with um, with anything based on your understanding of what's happening globally and FOCI's new offerings? Of, uh, of ideal programs? Uh, not, not necessarily. I, I, I think I, I said, you know, plenty. Uh, if, if people have specific questions from my perspective, I mean, essentially my perspective is, you know, since I read um, Silent Spring 60 years ago, I, I've been an ecologist. I, like I realized, you know, like we could solve all our human rights issues. We could solve our mili you know, militarism issues, peace issues, women's rights, racial rights, and so forth. And we could still really screw up if we don't solve our ecological problems. So um, I've been reading and paying attention and acting, taking action ecologically and writing about it. Uh, for my entire adult life. But if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to discuss anything. Great, thank you. So it's 5.30. Uh, you are listening, uh, if you're on the radio, to Cortez Community Radio at CKTZ 89.5 FM. And thank you to the 100 to 200 people that listen there and afterwards. It's a, a great honor to have your attention in these remarkable times. Uh, we're moving into the last half hour of 
I don't know, the sixth or seventh weekly community public meeting uh, that is increasingly going uh, into the radio space and, and people listening afterwards. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And today we have special guests, Max Tayson and Rex Weiler, both who are affiliated with the Friends of Cortez Island, who put forward um, some pretty gutsy proposals in, in these times of ecological crisis. So I would like at this time to open it up to anybody who's listening on the radio live. You're very welcome to call in at 935-0200, 250-935-0200 with any questions that you would like either Rex or Max to address or any particular uh, comments. There have been, for those of you participating on Zoom, there have been some notes in the, the chat room. I won't read them all, but if any of you who have made suggestions around reading lists, et cetera, want to share those, you're welcome to do that. So if, if there's anyone here live with us that wants to ask any questions and or share some possible synergies and some possible partnerships that you could see emerging with this uh, really big-minded and uh, gutsy proposal that Foka is putting out into the, into the world. We have a few people here with us. It's Um, Christina might put you a little bit on the spot. There's your hand, perfect timing. I know you have spent much of your life working with children and youth here on Cortez, specifically around getting them into nature, and that, that's a real passion of yours. So how do you see some of what uh, FOCA is putting forward as being additive to the great work that is already afoot? Or perhaps for those who just don't know, what is some of the work that is afoot? Uh, at present with kids and youth and nature education on the island. Welcome, Christine Robinson. So yeah, we finally got back on here. Um, well, what I wanted to say was, just, I think a couple of buzzwords that came out from Rex and to Max, and that is um, collaboration and reciprocity. And collaboration, I would say, I see happening organically, some organically, but also some intentionally between organizations on the island. And so, you know, both Fokai, Max, Helen, or Fokai and the Children's Forest have been in discussion um, because there's a lot of crossover between the fact that we're both fundamentally um, about uh, working with the natural world. Our focus has been working with children and youth and connection to the natural world. and that's something where there's you know a lot of overlap with with foci and particularly if foci is going to be um sort of moving into an area of um you know what, what max is calling the ecological youth program um in, in these last eight weeks there's been a very natural uh, collaboration between the children's forest and um, the Cortez family group with Desta, um, you know, just a natural one that happened. And it's been a really nice pairing of, of, of um, interest and experience. And so I, I think that some of these are happening. And I think going back to what Rex was talking about in terms of um, natural systems being a model to look to for solutions in how we navigate very difficult times. Um, you know, I look at, at how in an ecosystem you have, you know, collaboration between organisms and, and um, mutually working together. And, and I just think that those are really key foundational principles 
for um, for our community to operate by. And so um, I just wanted to say to Bax, you know, a big shout out to Foci for, you know, stepping into this void. And um, I think that's enough for now. I mean, I, I would say, I think we all know this, that in terms of resiliency on Cortez, um, <laughs> families and the community are resilient. And I think we get a resiliency because we have that interwoven connection with the natural world in our lives. It, it is just by virtue of where we live in a rural, um, in a rural place, it's, it's, in our, it's in our daily movement. And I think that a lot of times we don't actually credit that the source of energy and reciprocity and resilience that we're getting is actually from the natural world all around us. So I'll turn it over now to somebody else. Well, Christine, before you go, if I might put you on the spot, and I, I know you didn't sign up to be interviewed, but I'd love to ask you the same question I asked Rex, and that's if COVID was an encoded message from the earth, from nature, what's the message? What are we being called to listen to? Well, I think we're being called to listen to the natural world. I think we're being called to... Um, keep our relationship alive, to pause, to listen, to, um, to listen to the birds, to listen to the sound of the waves on the beach, to listen to the sound of the leaves uh, rustling through the trees, to stop, to slow down, <laughs> to stay connected, um, not just with the natural world, but with ourselves, to slow down and, and moment by moment have very um, genuine deep connections to the people that we share this community in. This is our ecosystem. This is our human ecosystem. So I think it's, it's um, a beautiful opportunity. Uh, it's a scary opportunity, but I think it's a beautiful opportunity. Um, and it's an opportunity for all of us to step up in the ways we feel called to. It's not just waiting for the few organizations out there that are, are recognizable organizations. I think that it's a call out to all of us individually to uh, be mindful um, and um, look at where we can contribute. Yeah, thank you for that. Cease, did you have anything to add? I just thought I'd sum that up um, in, in, in my own way. Um, very briefly, I, I I appreciate so much everything that's been said here today, and I, I agree with it all very much. But I guess I would add that I think it's not only the things that we do, but how we do them, and uh, and, and that leads to what do I think the Earth's message is? I think it's please. Uh, please start loving me again. We need to do things with reverence, and no matter what it is. And if we approach it that way with love, we'll get to the right place. That's, that's the message that I get. A dear friend of mine said to me recently that and this was a, a beautiful perspective to try on, that however horrific COVID is for so many people, 
at so many levels that it's a pretty gentle nudge in exchange for cessation of global travel. And so many of the things that we do to pollute the planet on such a regular basis and um, is challenging us to lean in to the invitation, as you say, to slow down and live simpler lives. And if we can indeed heed the wisdom, we might be better off for future rounds. So thank you to both of you for, for that. Anyone else, either on the radio, you can call in at 935-0200 or um, those of you here on the Zoom call that have anything to add? Can I riff on what C said there? Please. That is a max in case it's not synced up with my video. Um, yeah, just wanted to say that I think turning to the, the natural ecosystems around us for more of our food is really important piece to falling in love with where we live, like Cease was saying, and that falling in love is kind of a prerequisite for saving the world. Um, you know, we hear sometimes that undermining the health of salmon is a genocide, and for most of us, we don't know what that means exactly. It's hard to connect with that, but when you know that, you're, that your life and your culture relies on salmon, then, then that is a genocide, that there's you know, 75% of salmon populations have have vanished over the last 150 years. So genocide not only of the salmon, but of the culture that depends on the salmon. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can how can we fall back in love? and even deeper so in love with this place that we all do love and call home. I would invite any of you who are on the call, um, perhaps especially Max or Rex, to, if you care to speak about what you think is happening here on Cortez specifically that's remarkable in these times. I've been really leaning in a lot the last many months to seeking answers to that question from people who uh, are wiser than I by far about what's really afoot here and what makes Cortez a remarkable model. I keep hearing people say that this is a, a model community in, in many ways from which others can learn and the difference between being a model in a school is that we actually communicate it and other people care to learn from it so and that we are becoming a school. Um, what makes this a remarkable place that is worth paying attention to and leaning into even further? Rex, and then I see Christine. It's you, Noba. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I mean, you're the most remarkable thing we've got, but... I, Seriously. Cortez is unique, but it also has a lot to share, I think, with any uh, small rural community anywhere in the world that is making an effort to stay independent somewhat and to stay resilient and self-sufficient. And we all know we're a long way from really being anything like self-sufficient, but we try and we make a huge effort. And some people make, uh, some people are virtually there and we have our gardens and we, you know, if, if any of us has a crisis, our neighbors 
are there for us and we're there for them. That's, I think, going to be critical. One of the things I think is going to be critical in the long term, long run, is, is health care. And I mean, simple things like, do you know where the plants are to cure headache or do you know where the, you know, and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, how do we take care of each other on a medical level when as, you know, the industrial version, you know, the industrial machine begins to wind down and it might not affect our lives, but it, it directly, but might affect our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. So I think the sooner we start thinking about localizing everything we need and really using our good fortune of having a robust civilization, robust economy, uh, that we have the resources available to to help us get set up. Um, I think future generations are going to be very grateful that we did that. And I don't know what the particular thing that's unique about Cortez. Well, not necessarily uh, unique, but because uh, we're certainly not entirely unique, but worth really paying attention to. What's 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 special? What's happening here that is special at this time that is really worth cultivating, apart from nature? Nature will go on regardless of people. Yeah, um, nature will be fine. And I really well, share your reverence for nature, but at a human scale, what what are we getting right here that is worth? Well, we it? have we have Christine and Cees. Okay, you're going to get cut off. <laughs> Go ahead, cut me off. No, I think we do. We have we have a, a we have a community that is so rich with people who care. They care about each other and they care about the wild world and and that's a huge head start. I'll I'll end with that. Thank you. Um when you say people who care about each other, I was heard from somebody yesterday something that uh, I talking about how the world post-COVID might be significantly different. And, and one of the things that we're most known for here on Cortez is our potlucks and our getting together and sharing food. And, and they were wondering whether we would, our grandchildren would tell stories about the great potlucks that there were on Cortez. You know, are we going to be able to return to these, uh, these things that we have known to be the glue of our community or will we need to reinvent them in, in new forms? But Christine, you had um, perhaps a response to my question around what what's afoot here. Well, I, I would I would re- um, reiterate what Rex was saying. Um, I think one of the things that we're doing well here, and I, and I don't think we're unique, um, but I think one of the things we're doing well is that we we have relationships within the community. So we know who our neighbors are. We know who, um, we're not just um, faces um, somewhere. And we have um, a bit of a commitment to the people we work with in this community. And we're not, um, we're uh, a community of very strong-minded, strong opinionated people who are willing to step up and take initiative and not wait for something top down. I think that's actually, um, you know, there, there's, you know, a lot of people that joke about the Cortez community and the people that live here and the fact that we don't, you know, fit into little boxes. And I think that's one of our strengths is that we are willing to think and work outside of the box and look at what needs doing and 
decide to do it either as an organization or as a small group of, of individuals as a, as a neighborhood. And I think that that um, means that we have, um, we have a sense of hope. We are not inactive. So we feel like we see something that needs to be done. Here's a solution. Let's just band together and do something. So I think that that's actually a very strong um, describing characteristic of, of our community on Cortez. And I think that partly what feeds that is our connection to nature. Because we have that, that connection, I think we have a vitality and a sense of hope, which is um, just kind of runs through our lives. So that, that was what I was going to add. Thank you, Christine. And I note that Adam McKenty is here and he, he was on the board, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, for a time of the Children's Forest Trust and um, certainly holds that connection between youth and nature at, at his heart. And he just put in a note that he had something to share here. Welcome, Adam. Thanks, Noba. I've had technical difficulties, so I've sort of been popping on and off the call, so I don't really feel like I'm quite where everyone else is. Um, but just on this this topic of what's what's interesting or, or special about Cortez. I think another piece that I would say is that there are many places that have the connection to nature and community and care for each other. Cortez is certainly one of those. Um, but it has a, in my experience, a somewhat unique combination of that very local, very in, um, interconnected within a particular place culture that also is strongly connected to global perspectives. And in the last two years, I've spent a lot of time traveling around the world, well, portions of it, mostly interacting with people who are dedicating some portion of their lives to the kinds of questions that have been spoken about on this call. And I would say that that relationship to uh, global awareness goes both directions. I've been stunned at the contexts in which I'll mention Cortez Island and there'll be somebody who's been there or, or for whom this is, uh, this is a place that's close to their heart. So I'd say that, you know, there are, there are, there are sort of drawbacks to being on the map, um, but there's also strengths to it that we can we can draw on both in terms of expertise and and potentially funding and kind of bringing people into the questions that we have about how we're working locally but also it means that we're we are immediately a source of inspiration or knowledge or or uh, an example positive or otherwise for for a surprisingly large network around the world so I think it's worth just bearing this in mind as we think about, you know, what, how worth it is it to really put ourselves into the question of, of getting these things right here on Cortez. I think it has a bigger, we are in a bigger context that's closely connected to us, whether we realize that or not. And that, thank you for that, Adam. And, and I see that to very much be true at the, the human sphere. And I hear from people who are connected in the energetic sphere in ways far more than I, that that's the case energetically as well, that somehow there's 
connections between here and other places around the world in, in remarkable ways. But uh, lest I get too woo-woo on us here, uh, thank you for your international um, connections. Adam, was there anything that you wanted to, and if not, that's fine. You've, you've had your seat ahead a lot on these calls, but from the call that we had this morning with all of the other nonprofits, do you see any uh, opportunity for CETA to be an ally um, or supporter of some of the things that FOCI has been putting on the table um, through their, their application process here? Totally. I think, as I said, this morning that it feels somewhat like there are there are you know, parallel intentions if a, if a, a different mandate through which they're they're being addressed and and just hats off to Max and Foci for the the boldness of what what they've put together and the, and the you know the intentions behind it um, I think. I, some possibilities for collaboration among a bunch of nonprofits did come to mind and I'm hoping that we can, we can develop more over the next few days. Um, the, the obvious things to me were around fundraising, grant writing work, but also potentially for shared staffing or volunteer coordination, because this is a piece that, that has come up frequently that there's potential for for volunteers, but there, it requires work to coordinate them, and that work is is potentially less volunteer um, amenable than the the things that the volunteers might actually do. Um, and maybe there's a way for organizations to to share the logistics of getting volunteers on board. Um, yeah. And then more directly, I think the if there's if there are pieces of what foci is doing that kind of can fit within the the CETA mandate as well because they have some impact on on um, what could be termed economics in the very broad sense of caring for um, you know, management of a place or management of a home which is where the, the term comes from then then we could overlap more. Uh, we could work together more specifically on project stuff, but I think that's a conversation that, that we'll definitely have, mm -hmm. but that I don't have, uh, I don't have a thought about. No, fair enough. This is in many ways, I'm forcing a little bit of a, a collaboration between a lot of organizations who, um, who do collaborate on, to some degree, but not at this meta level. And it, I acknowledge it's a bit of a beta test of uh, inviting you to think of yourselves as parts of a whole. Um, one organization is the heart and the other is the toe and the other is the ear and whatever it might be and that they would work better in, in collaboration. And I, um, I truly, truly believe that if we can get a collective as, as much as possible, whatever that looks like, but a, some kind of generally supported uh, vision about where we're headed and who does what part of it, that the resources and funds will rise to support that. I really, I really believe that not only people who live here year round, people who um, vacation here, people who have summer properties, but as you say, Adam, people all over the world who really care about what's happening here and see it as a bit of a spark for what can happen in other places. So I, I do expect that 
we will be able to resource what is on the table and more as we get clear and, and manifest into being uh, what we can imagine to be. Max, you had something else to add? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, reiterate something that came up before that it was that it feels strange to be presenting this proposal uh, without having had a fulsome community conversation with with Adam and the rest of the gang at CEDA and with the Children's Forest Trust for the Future. But that's what um, we're doing. We got to start. And something. that's what we're doing. And I just wanted to highlight that and and maybe point out a, an analogy that I thought of, which is like how Cortez soccer works, where everybody shows up and then you make teams and then you play <laughs> soccer. This whole, this whole notion that we are separate entities is a bit of a fabrication just so that we can play a game yeah. with the outside world and with each other. But, it, but at the same time, we're all on the same team. And I think that, I think that we all feel that way and, and looking forward to making sure that those aren't actually real boundaries between our collaborations. That, that's a great, uh, a great analogy. And I certainly know that, uh, you know, when this goes to the regional district board, there are some organizations that are looked on more favorably than others. And, uh, mm -hmm. and then we all, we all bring, every organization brings a, a strength to bear. If, if somebody needs a, um, a tax receipt, well, there's half a dozen organizations that can is issue a tax receipt. And if you don't, then you can donate to others. But, but if I've got some money I want to contribute, and I'm about as connected into what nonprofits are up to on the island, it's still not clear to me where I should put it. You know, I, I donate some money to the food bank and a little bit here and a little bit there. But, but contributing it into this collective process where I tr trust the collective best intelligence of those who really pay attention and show up and think about these things at a meta level is, is I would have a whole lot more confidence in the collective decision than I would in me knowing where to put my few dollars. And so I really believe that if we can get this right, um, we will then put out a call to the island broadly and those who love the island beyond and say, you know, if you've got five bucks or five million, let's make this happen together. So I'm just so grateful for the, the nonprofits who have joined us in this endeavor. We're, we're wrapping up. We've just got a, a few minutes left. Is there anything that you want to close on, either Max or Rex, at the end of a luscious hour and a half together? Well, I would say this is a really good example right here. We all take this time and nice to see everybody. And it, and um, we're sort of, it's, it's just wonderful to see sort of this group effort to get our heads around these very challenging issues and thinking about the future. I'm, I'm very inspired by all of you and thank, thank you to all of you for participating and for those listening in on the radio and a, and a special shout out to Roy Hales who does so much great uh, reporting on this island. and relevant reporting and thanks Roy for all your work at the radio. Oh, I so echo that. I, I have so long wanted a media outlet so I didn't have to write all my own articles because that's one of the hardest <laughs> things for me to do. It really truly is to sit down and pull my words together and in a timely fashion and get them out. And there's some people who really rightly regularly criticize me for not being communicative enough in a timely fashion. And it has just taken the, the heat off to be able to point to Roy's articles on um, not only excellent topics that have nothing to do with me or the regional district, but also his reporting on 
the regional district board meetings and these meetings. I'm just ever so grateful. Uh, so thank you, Roy, for really helping create and be the, the backbone to what is a real media outlet on Cortez of, of Cortez Currents. Uh, if anybody wants to, to write articles, I think they, they have a number of people that contribute to Cortez Currents. I know that Dee Clark and, and Rex and I think Max and others uh, do so on a regular basis. Roy, are you looking, did you want to say anything? Are you looking for more contributors or anything to, to share with the public at this moment about Cortez Currents? Um, yeah, we're always looking for more uh, contributors. Okay. And thank you very much, both Rex and uh, Nova, for what you just said. For sure. Okay, um, I welcome your your thoughts about next week. Um, I do. I am committed to doing a series. I don't know if it's two more or twelve more. We'll see. But of uh, topics that emerge from this, I mean, we'll call it a grant and aid collaborative budgeting process. But it really is a, a trigger and a beta test for a much larger process. But I will be bringing forward other nonprofits onto the calls. Uh, both from an organizational perspective, a little bit more like we had today, as well as from a topic perspective, like last week's, which is around food security, where I invited multiple organizations uh, to come play ball together. Uh, Christine, you had a few concluding words? Oh, I was just struggling with my chat comments that were not going cor correctly. So oh. I just wanted to say, you know, that part of of all of this is also a thank you to you for your leadership in this situation and and for always you know taking the community to a bigger picture for holding high principles for envisioning and believing in the community because it it is all part of the success and the uh, reason that we are as active as we are it, it is my honor and i have come to understand that it is my karmic job <laughs> to, to try to help uh, build a collective path in this particular place. Uh, I, they, the path that we have the ability to create together is, is a remarkable and strong one, and it's about creating the spaces where that can emerge, and it's, it's my honor to help convene. So at six o'clock, that's the end of an hour and a half. I, I do please welcome your thoughts about um, how to make this series the most dynamic going forward. I'm really grateful to the listeners at Cortez Community Radio and indeed for the radio for broadcasting the week and to Aton for being our techie every week showing up at the radio uh, to plug in um, with the Hollyhock account. So thank you to Hollyhock for um, this professional Zoom account that allows us to do what we do here. I just feel so supported in, in these times that are globally really difficult and yet um, so far, have been really sweet in, in many ways here in this community, bringing folks together. So you're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5, it's 6.01, and that's a wrap for us. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Blessings. <laughs>